Mrs. Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Mura, her autobiography, written by Mura Limpany with Margot Strickland and published in 1991 by Peter Owens. Chapter 3 I Want to Be a Great Pianist In the early 18th century, Dr. Charles Burney tried to found an institution where orphans would be taught music, an idea his masters rejected on the grounds that music was an unnecessary luxury. Where the professional failed, the amateur succeeded. John Fane, 11th Earl of Westmoreland, studied music at Trinity College, Cambridge, furthering his interest while ambassador in Vienna and Berlin. Among his many compositions were eight operas, seven cantatas, innumerable madrigals, and a grand mass. He founded the Academy of Music in the 1820s, gaining it its royal charter in 1830. In the summer of 1912, it moved to its present magnificent house in the Marlbone Road. Though a school does not set out with the intention of breeding a horde of Beethovens, Rubensteins, or Paganinis, wrote Tobias Matai, yet if its teaching is efficient, it will sooner or later hatch out a genius or two. Several distinguished pianists had preceded me to the Royal Academy of Music. Myra Hess, Irene Schauer, Harriet Cohen, Clifford Curzon. On all floors from behind, closed doors filtered through the sounds of strings, keyboards, brass and wind instruments, and singers of all kinds, practicing all and every day. It was intoxicating to be a student in this atmosphere, dedicated to good music. I adored it from the moment I arrived at Baker Street Underground Station and walked down the road past Madame Tussauds to the handsome building with its spacious hall leading to the wrought-iron staircase embellished with musical motifs. Ernest Reed, who founded the famous Concerts for Children, was in charge of us R.A.M. students for oral training. This was quite a rigorous business. My English was still rather uncertain. I had grown up learning my music in French and thought in that language. I always wanted to reply to his questions, la noire, la croche, dièse, and bémol, instead of translating them in my mind first and replying quaver, semi-quaver, sharp, and flat. Miss Howell taught us composition, which, curiously enough, was a most unpopular subject with the students at the R.A.M. When the annual academy competition for composition, the Hein Gift, was announced, I enthusiastically determined to enter. It was for a ballade, a musical setting of a poem selected by the committee, and there were two months in which to compose it. The composition I worked on so tirelessly to perfect and note down with meticulous care a 
a task in which I took almost as great a pride as the music itself, was the only entry, which was discouraging for the tutor. I won the prize, and have treasured my little composition ever since, though it has never been performed in public. During my time at the R.A.M. I gave concerts, always announced as a child prodigy. Basil Cameron, after my debut at Harrogate, engaged me to play in Hastings, which was quite a red-letter day for me, since it was there that Cameron had caused me to change my surname to Limpany and in Eastbourne. By this time I had memorized the Greek piano concerto, which I had studied with Ambrose Coviello, learned other works, and broadcast for the BBC. I was working hard, performing and studying, and practicing between one and two hours every day. Nor was my general education neglected, for I was still a boarder at the convent school of Our Lady of Sion, attended lessons there, and was expected to pass the same examinations as the other girls, which I did. I had already made my debut as a soloist, which meant I was living on several different levels. On the concert circuit I was now something of a celebrity as a child prodigy, and an English one at that, a considerable attraction for concert promoters. At the academy I played the role of an ordinary student. One of the joys of life and work at the academy was the opportunities it presented of forging friendships and associations. Many trios, quartets, and quintets formed themselves to play chamber music together. With the violinists David Martin, Max Gilbert, Frederick Grinke, and Florence Houghton, who knew I was a good sight-reader, I played various sonatas but I had little time as I was always having to learn new solo works and rushing off somewhere to perform them. I had my school work, too. At the age of fourteen, I played one of my own compositions at a charity concert. It was late December at Anvers, Antwerp. My composition was an etude in B major, and I also played Chopin, Rachmaninoff, Bach, and Brahms. There were regular concerts in the French baronial Duke's Hall at the Academy, and an important annual concert at the Queen's Hall when some of us were chosen to be seen, heard, and judged. The annual concert was always conducted by Sir Henry Wood. In early June 1932, at the age of fifteen, I played the Greek piano concerto in A minor under Sir Henry's baton. Such a kind and encouraging master! The goodness of this great man is unforgettable. What a wonderful and humbling experience it was for me, a teenage girl. I adored him. He was so very nice to me. The Academy's journal described my playing thus. Moura Johnston, with her feathery touch and sure musical understanding, gave the first movement of Grieg's A minor concerto, Opus 16, as surely as Grieg himself would have wished to have heard it. Among many new pieces I learned at this time was a long sonata by the sadly forgotten English composer Benjamin Dale. He had been a student, professor, conductor, and principal at the Royal Academy of Music. It is a tragic fate for many gifted composers that their work has to be rediscovered and repeatedly played to an audience before they become conscious that it exists at all. So much marvelous music has been created 
and lies buried somewhere, waiting to be disinterred and revived. And yet many pieces of music remain effortlessly in the repertoire, and are played too often, so that the public wearies of them, and the musicians find it almost impossible to create a fresh performance of them. For a sonata, Dale's was unusually long, fifty-three minutes, and it was not an easy work to learn. I had difficulty with one particular passage. The repeat of the first theme towards the end of the first movement, which led to the end of the movement, I could not get it right, and practiced it endlessly by itself, instead of the entire movement. This was a serious mistake, but I was only fifteen. The one thing all concert pianists fear is a lapse of memory. Memory is a series of links, of chains. If you have studied a work well, then you know that once you start, every phrase is a link that will lead on to the very end. So wrote Tobias Matai, the great teacher who was on the committee of management of the RAM and one of its professors. I practiced this isolated passage in the Dale Sonata on the day before the concert when I should have been resting and conserving my energy for the performance. So when I stepped onto the platform, I started playing and went straight to the end of the first movement, just as I had practiced. The great thing when one has a lapse of memory is not to stop, but to find one's way to the next vantage point or theme. Somehow I played myself back to the beginning of the work and continued through the rest of the sonata with no more trouble. And happily, since the work was a new one and unknown to the audience, no one was any the wiser, and I was vigorously applauded. Perhaps fortunately for myself and my budding career, the composer himself was not present. The BBC, knowing I would play anything, asked me if I knew Armstrong Gibbs' Peacock Pie Suite lovely music settings of delightful poems for children by Walter de la Mare. I bought it, learned it, and played it. The work is hardly heard nowadays. One day my mother, who was always searching for ways to advance me in my career, read in The Tatler about the beautiful, music-loving Mrs. Raphael Van Neck, who had come from New York to live in London and gave glittering parties at which the standard of music offered the guests was high. My mother thought it would be helpful for me to play for Mrs. Van Neck and wrote to her. Mrs. Van Neck invited some friends to hear me. I was fifteen then, short and a little plump. I wore a black velvet dress and my hair still hanging down my back in two plates. Among the guests was a Mrs. Harcourt, who had been a professional pianist, and her two daughters, Diana and Griselda. I was not nervous, and played as I usually did. When I had finished at the piano, Mrs. Van Neck invited me to stay to dinner. This kind of formal social occasion was absolutely new to me. At one point, when the dessert was served, Mrs. Van Neck's butler handed me a tall silver object I had never seen before, and had no idea what to do with. I turned it upside down in my hands, and castor sugar from the sugar sifter, for such it was, rained down all over the table and my black velvet dress. I was mortified, but Mrs. Van Neck and Mrs. Harcourt were perfectly sweet and understanding. 
The years at the Royal Academy of Music passed so quickly. At the end of the third and final year, I won the Challen Gold Medal for the best student of the year. I wore a long white dress and vermilion grosgrain sash at the presentation ceremony. I was sixteen, and my mother decided I must go to Vienna for further study, where I could also learn German. The problem, as always, was money, how to pay for this, the travel, the tuition, the living expenses. The only solution was that I must earn the money. My mother wrote to a convent school in Vienna, which agreed to take me as a resident for nine months. In return for my board and lodging, I would be expected to speak English to the girls. On arrival in Vienna, I made inquiries and obtained introductions to the best piano teachers in Vienna. Emil Sauer and Paul Weingarten. Which of them should I approach? Sauer was by then quite old, and so I telephoned Weingarten. He invited me to go and play for him. I did so, and he agreed to teach me, and then I had to make a confession. I had no money to pay for the lessons. He replied, You will pay me when you earn money at your next concerts. This I duly did. Feingarten was far from young, but he was devastatingly handsome, with a mane of beautiful white hair coursing back from his noble brow. He had also a great fascination of manner. All the women were madly in love with him. I was very shy. I admired and revered him as a tutor. He was the great man who was teaching me to play the piano better. With him I studied that most romantic of works, the Piano Concerto Number no. 2 by Rachmaninoff. He was entirely paternal towards me, and even reproved me, saying, Don't be so academic. Let yourself go. What can be said about Vienna that has not been said already a thousand times better than I can hope to do in a great many books? This magic city was so wonderful. I was young, and my time in Vienna was a time of discovery and learning. It was so beautiful to look at, and all the musical associations were precious to me. All a musician's idols had been there. Here Beethoven had lived, there Mozart, and the Strauss family had immortalized the city and glorious woods where at weekends the convent students and I used to roam. At this time, 1932, Hitler was beginning to rearm Germany, but any forebodings of that evil were not apparent to me. A vivacious English girl of sixteen, utterly immersed in her music studies, and intent for the rest of the time in enjoying herself as any girl would. The girls at the convent were all about the same age as myself, light-hearted and gay. One weekend in the country, outside Vienna, we stopped at one of those open-air restaurants, the kind in which Richard Tauber sang in his film debut when a visiting impresario discovered him and made him a star. There were many vibrant talents in and around Vienna, but not all were destined to be discovered and become famous. There was a piano at this restaurant, and the girls asked me to play, so I did. I was playing for joy and through this chance performance I made two lifelong friends. One was a girl called Ninon Leiter, who took me to meet her parents. They were so kind and affectionate they became like a second family to me. 
just as those families had been during my early years in Belgium. The other was a Mr. Slavotinsky, who was in Vienna with his family on holiday from London, where he was head furrier at Kalman Links. This shop had the great distinction of holding the royal appointment. He made himself known to me at this little open-air restaurant outside Vienna, gave me his card, and begged me to get in touch when I was in London again. Would I play for his boss, who was very musical and would be delighted with my playing? He asked me. I agreed. I stayed in Vienna nearly a year. When I returned to London, I met and played for J. G. Lynx and his two sisters. At this time J. G. Lynx was studying the piano himself, with Elsa Karen, who had been a pupil of Courtauld. He took a great interest in my career, and generously offered to pay for me to have a few lessons with Elsa Karen, which I did. My time in Vienna had been well spent, and it was now decided that I should enter one of the several prestigious piano competitions, the Liszt Piano Competition in Budapest. It was the summer of 1933, and I was not yet seventeen. My mother once again overcame the financial obstacles by obtaining another engagement for me as an au pair to a family with a teenage daughter anxious to learn English. So I travelled to Hungary, where between trying to teach English to my pupil and practice the formidable compositions by Liszt, I was fully and exactingly occupied. These competitions always attracted agents and impresarios on the lookout for outstanding talent which they could encourage and on which they could capitalize. Wilfred Van Wyck was present at the Budapest piano competition, and he admired my playing, but I was not yet ready for these big guns of the musical world. The first prize went to Annie Fisher, who is still today considered to be one of the best, some would say the best, woman pianist in the world. I adored Budapest, a hypnotic medieval city built on hills, an artist's city through and through, and cosmopolitan. The most romantic of rivers, the Danube, divided the old Buddha from the new Pest. I felt and absorbed the magic of the Magyar tradition everywhere. Its instrument was the violin, the yearning music I had been unable to learn to love to play. Minstrels strolled about the cobbled streets casually, playing heart-rending gypsy melodies. We had picnics on Marguerite Island in the middle of the Danube, and I was taken to the famous tea dances and to the even more famous swimming pools. English girls were very popular in Hungary, and I was courted by handsome young men, all wonderful dancers and swimmers. I spoke English, French, and German, and they all tried to teach me Hungarian. I could dance all night, and frequently did. I had a really wonderful time until one man went too far in pursuit of me, with unfortunate and embarrassing results. He was not one of the lively young beaux with whom I swam and danced and picnicked, but the father of one of my girlfriends. I was rather suspicious of his intentions. However, I saw no reason to refuse my friend's invitation to spend the weekend at her family's country house. It was on the Putza. We were to be a large party, and I believed I could take care of myself. 
In the rambling old house, I found to my surprise and dismay that the bedroom I was shown into was in a quite separate wing from the rest of the guests, and I became worried. So when I went to bed, I locked my door on the inside and slept happily and fearlessly all night. The next morning, however, I found I could not unlock the door. I fiddled with the key, turning it this way and that, pulling and tugging helplessly at the handle. It would not budge. Then I began to panic. Claustrophobia set in. I screamed and screamed, Let me out! Let me out! Till at last someone heard me and came and released me. This apparently trivial incident left me with a real horror of being shut in, and I try never to lock myself in anywhere, even the loo. On my return to England from Hungary, I was seventeen. My mother now resolved that even Bexhill-on-Sea was too far from London for me to be if I were to forge a career on the concert platform. It was clear from all shades of opinion she consulted that, incredible as it seemed, I had a real musical future. It was even then a competitive field for a musician, and it is a hundred times more competitive now. In the thirties, the record industry had barely begun, and most music was heard only at live performances. My resourceful mother found a little house to rent at Wimbledon, and I got myself a job as an accompanist to a singing teacher, a Miss Baldock, whose studio was at 46 Oakley Street, Chelsea. It was a short ride on the underground, followed by a twenty-minute walk. I enjoyed the work very much. Luckily it was not a full-time job, only a few hours a day. I needed to earn more to pay my way, and so I managed to get myself another job teaching a little boy French for five shillings an hour. I loved children, and the little boy and I got on splendidly together. I was earning about one pound a week, out of which I gave my mother ten shillings. I was so proud to be earning a little money by myself that I went into the National Provincial Bank in Wimbledon and asked to see the manager. He readily admitted me to his office and contemplated me from behind a large desk. "'What can I do for you, young lady?' he asked benignly, and smiled when I told him I wished to open a bank account, my first. "'How much do you wish to deposit?' he then inquired, and was surprised to learn it was all of one pound. But open an account with him I did.' Occasionally letters would arrive with offers of concerts. When such a letter arrived at Wimbledon for me, I would let out a blood-curdling whoop of joy. It meant I was making a little progress. I would have something to work for. I never refused any engagement. Even if I did not know the work I was asked to play, I never confessed my ignorance, but rushed out and bought the music and learned it. That is how I gradually built up a reputation for versatility. This life of an accompanist teacher ended when Ambrose Coviello suggested I sit for the Elizabeth Stokes Scholarship, again at the Royal Academy of Music, which I won. This time, being older, I was the contemporary of most of the students, but I still saw relatively little of them as I resumed studying with my dear old Ambrose Coviello. 
Raphael van Neck and Mrs. Charles Harcourt, for whom I had last played before going to Vienna and Budapest, got in touch with me again, and soon I became a sort of society pet, playing for their at-homes for all sorts of fees, sometimes five guineas, or for as little as half a guinea. Through these engagements, I began to frequent a milieu far above my social station, and met more and more important people. Sir Austin Chamberlain, who had been foreign minister, and Lady Chamberlain, after I had played at one of their receptions, when they heard I would be going back to Wimbledon by myself on the underground, insisted that I stay overnight. The Duke of Alba, the Spanish ambassador, invited me to a reception. I was delighted to accept. I went by myself to this dazzling assembly at the beautiful embassy, in the corner of Belgrave Square. All around me were a host of strange people. There was a long table at one end, heaped with food beautifully laid out, and rows of glasses filled with champagne. I was petrified, and there alone seized one glass and downed it, put it down, and walked out of the room, deciding to go straight home. But on my way out I was stopped by a charming man, Sir Ronald Clive, Marshal of the Diplomatic Corps. "'Why are you leaving so early, my dear?' he asked. I told him the truth. I was alone, I knew nobody, and dared not speak to anyone. He smiled kindly, and offered me his arm. "'Come with me,' he suggested. "'I will introduce you to everyone.' So I took his proffered arm, and he led me in, and I was soon laughing and talking. Ever since I have always found myself to be en rapport with the corps diplomatique. Had I not become a pianist, I might well have chosen to be a secretary to either a politician or a diplomat. After only two terms of my second scholarship at the R.A.M., my mother arranged for me to have private lessons with Matilda Verne. This was a most important professional step. She and her two sisters were among the best teachers of piano in London. All three women had been pupils of the legendary Clara Schumann, wife of the great composer. Matilda Verne had attended one of the first recitals by Paderewski, and had been teaching for over fifty years. My mother and others urged me to earn the fairly easy money I could have done by playing the piano for the tea-room at Lyons Corner House. But, I protested earnestly, I want to be a great pianist. There are many levels of artistic attainment. Somerset Maugham wrote a brilliant short story about a young man who committed suicide because he passionately wanted to be a great pianist and could not face the truth when he was told his was a mediocre talent. I just wanted to play the piano, and I wanted to play it better. I was never conscious of possessing exceptional talent. I simply followed the road that opened up before me. Without my mother, I should never have reached the point I had reached, where at eighteen I began to study with this great teacher, one of whose pupils was the Duchess of York. The connection with Clara Schumann was an important one. Clara Schumann and Teresa Carreño were the forerunners of the modern woman concert pianist. When she first heard me play, Madame Verne concluded that my technique was inborn. If you do not keep up your technical practice, she warned me, 
you cannot possibly be free to interpret. In a Beethoven sonata, for instance, you will find humor, poetry, passion. How can you show all that if the muscles are not first trained and in trim to produce what you want? Train your fingers, your muscles, and your mind, and then play what you feel. Madame Verne laughed a great deal, most infectiously, but she was a martinet, adamant that I should play one hour's exercises every day, and practice four hours a day, one hour at a time, with an interval of one hour. These were 10 to 11 a.m., 12 to 1 p.m., 3.30 to 4.30 p.m., and 5 to 6 p.m. I got so used to this routine that I found it hard to practice differently. The hours might change slightly, but it was always two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon. Six o'clock was the time to relax completely, the day's work done. Unless an urgent concert or recording loomed, I never played or practiced after seven o'clock, preferring to go to bed early and get up early the next morning, fresh for further work. Madame Verne said my hands were enchanting. A pupil with small hands as mine were needed a different method of teaching from a pupil with large ones. I try to make my pupils feel the music, she said, so that they need to express its beauty, and to work with them I have to understand my pupils, their natures, and their characters, so that the lesson grows out of our personal relationship. Madame Verne was very keen on a beautiful tone. A beautiful sound was part of the Schumann tradition, and she inculcated into me that Schumann did not like all those soul-searching rubatos some pianists poured into their Schumann interpretations. You must act with your hands, she instructed. The movements of the hands must result from the feeling behind them. Who said pianoforte playing was easy? she said sighingly to me one day. The piano is the most difficult instrument in the world to play. There are so many things to think about. Once I sat down to play to her the Schumann Piano Concerto, and I had just played the first entry, Allegro Affettuoso, and settled down to the next phrase, the beautiful solo, at about half the pace, when to my shock and dismay she tore my hands off the keys. "'Why are you playing half-time?' she demanded. "'Because it is always played like that,' I replied mildly. "'Has Schumann marked another tempo there?' she asked. "'No,' I replied meekly. "'Well, then,' she instructed sharply, "'play it as it is written, the same tempo as the entry.' For the second movement she wanted it to move, as did Schumann, and not held back at a snail's pace, as was the practice of so many pianists, presumably to show the extent of their emotion. "'Can't you feel it?' she shouted at me. And the third movement she wanted played at the given metronome pace, not very fast, so that every note could be heard and mean something. She liked to watch my hands. They literally seem to dance on the keys, she observed. The actual physical conditions must be easy and natural, she continued. I like the arm to lie in a natural position, no crooking of the elbow to make a triangular sort of effect.
Many students needed stretching exercises, and I was one of them. These improved my technique out of all recognition. As each finger in the upward sequence presses down on a key, Matilda Verne explained, it remains down until it is required to play the corresponding note in the downward sequence. The transference from one note to the other must be done with the utmost legato, and the tone must be beautiful throughout, and the hand and arm held without any stiffening whatever. She was insistent, too, that exercises should never be practiced mechanically, but in a lovely tone for every note. This can only be produced, she said, by thinking and listening. Beauty should be the aim of it all, and this comes from the heart as well as the head. Matilda Verne said one day, I want you to give a recital at the Wigmore Hall. The Wigmore was a lovely warm auditorium with, for the audience, the added joy of an Art Nouveau mosaic apse over the stage. But for me, the artist, this was a great test. I was to give a solo recital, and the audience was formed not of kind society ladies, but serious critical cognoscenti, not to mention the critics themselves. In those days a recital cost about fifty pounds or sixty pounds, and the only way to cover the expenses was to sell a great many tickets. Matilda Verne knew many wealthy and influential patrons of classical music, and she had no difficulty in selling enough tickets. The recital was a success. When around this time I was engaged by the great Lancastrian conductor Sir Thomas Beecham to play the Schumann Piano Concerto at Croydon, I was alarmed by the tales I heard on all sides about him. He had a fearsome reputation. He was said to be an ogre who adored women, but hated women pianists, although he had married one, Betty Humby, who had preceded me at the Royal Academy of Music. So, before the rehearsal, I approached him with some trepidation. He stood on the podium, baton in hand, a dapper little man in shirt-sleeves and braces, gym shoes on his feet. "'Sir Thomas,' I quavered, not daring to look him in the eye, but fastening my gaze on his imperial beard, "'I fear I play the concerto a little differently from the usual way.' He fixed me with piercing blue eyes and said nothing. I play the first movement more moderato, the second a little quicker than usual, and the third slower than usual. He continued looking at me in silence for a moment, his rubicund features unruffled. My dear young lady, he suddenly said in a suave purr, it is your concerto, and I will follow everything you do. He was as good as his word. Tragically, and very sadly for me, because I had grown so attached to her, and her tuition had meant a great deal to me, Matilda Verne suddenly died. It was such a shock, such a loss. At eighteen I felt absolutely lost. I could only try to remember all she had taught me, and what I did not consciously recall had been absorbed into my playing and would never be forgotten.' 